Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 82, produced 18 May 2021. Space, the final frontier. Well, for most of us it is, anyway. As of 2018, according to Wikipedia, 562 individuals from 37 countries have achieved spaceflight. Now, that's a flight reaching an altitude of at least 80 kilometers or 50 miles above the Earth. Accomplishing such a feat earns one the title of astronaut or star voyager. I'm Glenn Moyer, and one of those individuals, born in Indiana, USA, and raised in Aberdeen, Scotland, is Brian Binney, pilot of the unique winged spacecraft, Spaceship One, and arguably the first Scottish astronaut. In a moment, we'll meet Brian and reflect on his remarkable voyage to the stars, right here, under the tartan sky. Are you .scot yet? .scot is the domain for the worldwide community of Scots. It became available to the public in late 2014 and is used by the Scottish Government and Parliament, the National Health Service in Scotland and thousands of other organisations and individuals around the globe. .scot doesn't mind where you live or what kind of Scottish connection you have. If you're Scottish by birth, heritage or affinity, or an association that practices and promotes Scottish arts and culture, or a business with some kind of Scottish connection, then .scot is for you. Best of all, it's easy to sign up to. Simply visit domains.scot, choose your domain name and you're off and running. And by the way, if you're just looking for a wee blether, our email service will help you do that too. .scot, be part of it. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long range exploration of space. With that direct and bold statement before a joint session of the U.S. Congress, President John F. Kennedy set events into motion that we know today as the space race. In doing so, he launched the careers, indeed the destiny, for many a scientist, engineer, mathematician, and even a few pilots, one of whom was, at the time, just a wee lad growing up in Aberdeen, Scotland. Brian Benny was born to Scottish parents in April 1953 in West Lafayette, Indiana, USA. At the tender age of five, the family returned to their native Scotland and lived in Aberdeen, where his father taught at Aberdeen University. Years later, as a teenager, Benny and his family returned to the USA, making their home in Boston. Brian went on to join the U.S. Navy and served 21 years as an aviator and test pilot. Even with the typical flight test background, his entry into the astronaut corps was anything but typical. Rather than riding a rocket into space as part of a NASA crew, Binney earned his astronaut wings as one of the two pilots who flew the revolutionary Spaceship One winged spacecraft in suborbital flight. 
Designed by Bert Rutan and built by his company Scaled Composites, Benny made the first test flight of that spacecraft, and then, on October the 4th, 2004, he piloted the ship's second flight within a week's time to claim the $10 million Ansari X Prize. The X Prize was offered for the first non-government organization to launch a reusable crewed spacecraft into space twice within two weeks. At the time, he was the 435th person to go into space, but just the second to earn a set of astronaut wings from the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration for a flight aboard a private commercial spacecraft. His flight peaked at an altitude of 69.6 miles, or 112 kilometers, setting a winged altitude record for suborbital flight, and breaking the previous record set by the X-15 rocket plane in the year 1963. He is arguably Scotland's first astronaut. After years with scaled composites, Benny joined XCOR Aerospace as a senior engineer and test pilot. Following the success of Spaceship One, Rutan joined with Sir Richard Branson and formed a joint venture called the Spaceship Company to build Spaceship Two, which they hope will eventually carry paying passengers on suborbital sightseeing flights from a spaceport in New Mexico, USA. Benny, too, is a proponent of such suborbital space flights and is hopeful that Scotland may see a role in this future evolution of space travel. Already, sites in Scotland are being considered as the location for the first UK spaceport, and we'll hear Brian's thoughts on that a bit later. But to begin our conversation, I turned back the clock on our combined youth. You see, Brian and I were both born just a few weeks apart in 1953, and so we each have lived the space race from its very beginning. If Kennedy's speech before Congress set Benny and others on a path to the stars, it was the round-the-clock news coverage of the Kennedy assassination that inspired me to pursue a career in broadcast journalism. For Benny, it was not just Kennedy's speech, however. There was a not-so-subtle nudge from his Scottish mum that eventually launched him into space. From some unknown influence or genetic makeup, as a very early age, even in Indiana, uh, and certainly all my, my youth in Scotland, I was fascinated by airplanes. Um, I don't know where it comes from. Nobody else uh, in the clan had any involvement, but I loved to watch them. Uh, I loved to, to draw them. I would make models off them and crash them and uh, make some more. And um, I, I really wanted to, whatever it took, be involved in, in aviation. And then along the way, my mother asked me, in Scotland, you'd come home for lunchtime. And so I'd be home and I'd be eating a banana sandwich, which <laughs> sounds strange, but it was not a regular in Scotland. And she asked me, well, fit, fit you on a day for you. You grew up, laddie. And I'm, I'm still what, nine or so. I, and I, I sort of hem and haw and think, well, um, maybe a footballer, uh, a fireman, you know, those sort of... Uh, typical things. Uh, yeah, typical things that... Um, and the, and the aviation stuff, I well, it was still there. I didn't know how to articulate uh, what an aviation interest would, would actually do. And so my mother hearing this, she goes, oh, no, oh, no, oh, if I was a wee laddie, I'd want to be an astronaut. 
well, uh, you know, I did not know for a, what an astronaut was. And so she proceeded to explain um, about uh, rockets and uh, uh, spaceflight and spaceships and uh, planetary travel and, uh, you know, the wonderful uh, adventure that uh, getting out to space uh, could provide. And I think maybe the uh, Apollo program, although while it hadn't done anything yet, it was maybe making part of the news cycle. And um, so I think that was where she was getting it. And she sort of put it on my lap. And um, I believe in hindsight that, you know, she planted the seeds mm-hmm. uh, for what eventually I tried to do in my career path. And, uh, you know, it, it, it worked out. Well, that's interesting because you obviously are an astronaut. You were the second person to receive your wings from the FAA for a flight aboard a private spacecraft. But you're not a NASA astronaut, just so we're clear about that. Was it a conscious decision not to get into the NASA program, or was that more a result of your career path, or was it just coincidence that it worked out that way? It it was a little of both. Um, In your military career, there are certain windows um, where they consider you eligible for application. And my first window came up on the heels of the Challenger uh, accident. And at that time, NASA had sort of scuttled all the uh, shuttle flights and was trying to, you know, uh, reestablish itself as an agency that could safely launch and recover these vehicles. And, and so that they were down for two or three years. And, and then that two or three year uh, period was when I was uh, eligible. But, um, you know, they really weren't taking anybody because uh, the, the current crop of people had moved. And um, closer to the end of my Navy career, I, I maybe could have uh, applied and uh, had, some, uh, had some success. But um, by, by then, I sort of knew a little bit more about life at NASA, life as a NASA astronaut, um, the good number of people that are uh, selected but actually never fly. Or uh, they select them, and uh, six, seven, eight years later, they maybe finally fly. So there were some downsides to all of that. And also, it's very competitive. There was no um, sort of uh, guarantee that you're going to get selected. Uh, so anyway, I, I, um, I made the application once. Uh, it wasn't... Um, wasn't uh, really brought forward. And then after that, I kind of started looking elsewhere. You obviously did go into space piloting Spaceship One, which was a private sector endeavor. We'll get into that in more detail shortly. You and I both grew up at the same time. Um, We both have, I would expect, probably some of the very similar memories of the uh, early space program. And that's been in the news very much here lately. I mean, we've just passed the anniversaries of Yuri Gregarin's flight. Literally a few days ago was the anniversary of Alan Shepard's flight. And of course, we recently lost Michael Collins, who I was privileged to meet some years ago when he was the head of the Air and Space Museum. 
I'm curious, what would you say is your most outstanding memory of the early space race from the days of your youth? Well, you know, all of this was kind of percolating while I'm in Scotland. So I'm I'm not getting maybe the same um, maybe not sense as of exposed uh, to it as we were here. Yeah, but when uh, Neil and Buzz uh, landed on the moon in nineteen July nineteen sixty nine sixty nine sixty nine yeah yeah I always. Uh, I stayed up uh, with my dad. He said, "Oh, you know, you want to watch this?" And uh, you know, the picture wasn't—you know—the televisions weren't that good, and uh, the video coming down from it, you know, was wow. You know, I, I was just glued to this uh, TV. And one one of the reasons that that, that it kind of really resonated with me was um, in 1968, I. <laughs> I took my father. I said, "Come on, Dad, we we really gotta gotta watch this. I think it'll be fun." And it was Stanley Kubrick's um, 2001: Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah, right. So that was yeah. in '68. That that motion picture just oh, you know, I wow. Even by today's standard, it was really well done, and and I was just captivated. And then lo and behold. Uh, here it is. A year later, huh, there's men on the moon, and I'm I'm thinking myself, crikey, I I better you know get get going here, or I'm gonna miss the I'm gonna miss it all, and uh, so that that was my first early exposure. Uh, it turned into a sort of a concern that I you know, I might be too late to the party. With Mike's passing, the number of those men who went to the moon is continuing to decline. I think I think there's maybe three. I think so, yeah. Buzz, yeah. obviously, being the only one of the Apollo 11 crew still yeah. left. And, and it's a lot like in my lifetime, our lifetime, we've seen all of the World War II veterans pass away. Each year, a different anniversary year, but each year there are fewer and fewer of the, the men who actually fought that. So, in essence, an entire episode of... of our lifetime is quickly passing into history. Since you were inspired by that era of time, what do you think today we should be, we should remember about those men and about those missions? How important was it for us to go to the moon? What's your take on, mm. on that era? So there's two separate uh, questions here. There's one about the World War II generation, and uh, I, I kind of side with. Um, Mr. Brokaw's book, uh, The Greatest Generation. Mm, yes. My uncles and my father, were, you know, participated in that. And uh, many of the other adults, as I was growing up in Scotland, you know, had 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 roles in uh, World War II. And I thought of them as the finest people I knew. Back in those days, you tended to respect your adults. You know, it's just the way you do it. But uh, in my heart, these guys were, they'd gone through so much, but they had this cheerful um, outlook. They were uh, simple things, you know, uh, could bring them joy. And, and they were just a great pleasure to be around. Uh, and, 
with those kind of people in the background, their sacrifices, um, and now sort of coming out of that is this notion of uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna go to the moon. Uh, we're gonna beat the damn damn Russians there, and uh, uh, JFK uh, announced it in what uh, sixty. 61 and he wanted to do it um, you know by the end of the decade and neil and buzz uh, got it done in eight years but uh, honestly the the apollo's uh, one or zero uh, fire was in uh, i want to say 65 where they they lost three men in the uh in the capsule because of an oxygen uh, fire. So that was a tremendous setback that uh, they were going to redesign that entire crew cabin module and everything that, that attached to it. And the, the sense was there's no way they are going to be able to do that and recover and still make it to the moon by the end of the decade. But yet they did. And um, to me, that sort of epitomized a lot of what was going on in aerospace during that time frame. There were so many achievements and new developments going on. You had the X-15 doing its rocket-powered flights for uh, basically material characterizations at high Mach numbers. Um, we had the XK-70 Valkyrie uh, Mach 3 bomber um, being flight tested. Uh, airplanes were were coming out, uh, designs coming out left and right, and people were flying them. Um, all the lifting bodies, uh, work was being done at that time, uh, and it was a really um, flourishing environment for anybody with any interest in uh, um, airplanes, uh, aerospace engineering, whatever. It was all over the map. Uh, and I, I think there's probably more achieved <laughs> during the uh, uh, 60s and part of the 70s than uh, any other decades that we've had uh, really since then. I mean, well, so it's a great time in history. I'm wondering if, in your perspective, if people are no longer as excited, thrilled, have that sense of wonderment, about space exploration because there's no longer really a manned element. I mean, yes, we have people going up to the space station, but we've been there, done that, and it's really sort mm -hmm. of become mundane. Is it time, you think, for us to, um, for lack of a better phrase, I'll borrow one, is it time to boldly go once again where no man has gone before? Do we need manned exploration and the excitement that comes with it, do you think? There's probably a couple different camps in, in that regard. There are those that, you know, have just the romantic notion of uh, leaving Earth and going to, you know, another planet, another world, sort of a la um, Star Trek. And then I, 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 I think there's a lot more in the other camp that says, well, as my boss said, the, one of the worst things the uh, uh, earliest rovers could have done uh, was send back pictures from Mars, because as he looked at them, he said, 
it looks just like Mojave. <laughs> okay. you know? yeah. and, and who wants who wants to go to right you know, the, all the way to Mars <laughs> to, to you know and and so I I think there's when it comes down to it, a lot of practical people go well um, you know really what are we gonna achieve accomplish uh, on on Mars that's gonna trickle down and better our options or uh, way we manage you know, planet Earth. And, you know, it, it's hard to make a case, I, I think, uh, that there would be any. Um, and that, that assumes that the people that, that go to Marge actually live long enough to sort of have a settlement and maybe do some stuff. But where I, I keep thinking if if you're going to stir up the the public again, um, you know, the moon's just been hanging out there waiting um, for a long, long time for, you know, some return business. And uh, if, uh, if you can't demonstrate you can build uh, a moon base or uh, a satellite uh, base on the moon, um, then I have a hard time extrapolating um, that you're going to do anything really clever on Mars other than simply survive. I want to talk a little bit about your experiences in space. You went to space as the pilot of Spaceship One. You were not part of a two- or three-man crew, and you weren't riding atop some huge rocket. You were, in a sense, almost an old-style pilot, a stick-and-rudder man, in a winged aircraft, Spaceship One. Obviously, it was rocket-propelled, but it wasn't a taxpayer-funded government program. It was a private enterprise thing. You went into space alone. Tell me a little bit about that flight and that experience. What was it like as as pilot of Spaceship One and, and going into space in that vehicle? Uh, I'll tell you what I think is the, the appeal for these suborbital tourism-type flights is that... Uh, you're really getting exposed to the whole package uh, over the span frame of oh, 15 minutes, really. To me, I came away with, wow, I'm released from the mothership, the rocket motor lights off, I'm you know, fighting to, to keep that under control and that lasts a minute and a half, and then, boop, everything changes, and you're just drifting weightless, and it feels marvelous, and life is good, and that goes for oh three and a half minutes and then you get a little sense of uh here comes gravity again and re-entry is nothing like the ascent it's um it's just smooth as butter with the exception of building g rates and uh, an increasing uh noise field around the uh the vehicle as you start sort of hitting the uh the atmosphere and then and then just as you're kind of absorbing that, then uh, the, the vehicle is subsonic and it's in the reentry configuration. It's, it kind of doesn't know what to do. Um, it's not a spaceship anymore. It's really not a glider. And it's just kind of arcing around um, uh, until you put the wing back down uh, to make it a glider. 
and uh, and now you have 20 minutes or so to um, figure out where you are and bring the airplane back uh, to the runway. And so that is so compressed with each of those sort of four phases of the, the profile so completely different from each other that you step out of the, the vehicle, I think, as a tourist, and you're just going to be going, wow. <laughs> Nobody possibly could have uh, described this for me. And, and I maintain that. I could talk about it all day long, and uh, I can't spoil it for you, uh, which is a great thing. You know, uh, if you try to tell somebody about a great book you wrote or a movie you might have seen, good chances are, raise the expectations to where uh, the person now watching the movie or reading the book is going, yeah, yeah it's not so great. But uh, these space flights, uh, the rockets, are very impressionable. Um, you know, you, you've got your adrenaline flowing. It's accelerations that are uncomfortable, unfamiliar, you know, sort of they're going through your chest as opposed to head to tail for normal aeronautical um, G-loadings. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of noise and vibrations and weird sounds from the uh, from the engine and the plumbing systems as they start emptying out. And, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a bit of a rough ride. But when you turn that motor off, you know, it's just like three things happen and they happen right now. There's no more shaking vibrations, shuddering vibrations. There's no more noise, the screeching, or the plumbing of the engine all goes away. And you become instantly uh, uh, weightless. And the karma of that transition is just, oh, it's magical. Uh, I, I think if I was a psychologist or something, I could, I could make the case that uh, it is impossible to, to be depressed going through that transition to where you're now weightless with the most magnificent view you've ever had. And you know, the view is 500 miles in, in any direction as long as there's not a big haze there. So from Scotland, um, you know, I've said this, uh, you know, there's some sites that have been um, identified and uh, what a great place to launch from. You're going to see all of the Scotland, England, uh, parts of uh, France and Europe, and Northern Europe, Denmark and uh, Sweden, or the Scandinavian uh, coastline. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, wow, what a view, you know. Um, and, and it's all yours. And uh, yeah, only three and a half minutes, but you can't hold your breath for three and a half minutes. So but there really is uh, a, a good amount of time to, you know, sort of go, ooh, and ah, and take some pictures. And uh, there'll be treasures, uh, I, I assure you. You've led me, honestly, right past one question and right into this one. And I wanted to talk about that, the fact that Scotland today is essentially poised to find itself at the forefront of the next chapter of the space exploration with the first UK spaceport. And, and you're right, they've identified sites up in the, the Sutherland region in the highlands, I think near uh, Forres. 
And there's been talk about another site, I think, up in Shetland. I know the Highlands and Islands Enterprise is um, already studying the idea. But there's also, perhaps not surprisingly, there's uh, those who have announced their opposition to it. A lot of that is based on environmental concerns. What are your thoughts about putting a spaceport um, somewhere in, in the highlands of Scotland? And although initially I think they're talking about using it as a, a satellite launching pad, essentially, mm. obviously you're envisioning the idea of what Spaceship One was all about, eventually was creating suborbital space tourism. Does yeah. Scotland need to be in that business? Would that be a good business for Scotland, you think? Oh, absolutely. I think it'd be a great business uh, uh, for any country uh, once, you know, this technology's uh, proven itself. And, and we're getting close to that, you know. I, you know, Bezos is already talking about flights in July, I believe, and Elon, um, uh, I think, in his first all-commercial crude um Dragon capsule. He's raffling off uh, one ticket for you know some lucky or some rich guy that wants to bid for it. And, yeah, and go that way. So they're they're both uh, looking at it, and Branson's been obviously uh, looking at it for a long time, and um, he he may now be the the long pole in meeting the requirements to to take people up there. But the advantage of the Branson design is, you know, it's not a rocket launching pad that you're you're looking at. Uh, you, you're watching an airplane take off from a runway and then it basically disappears um, up in the sky unless it's uh, got contrails and, you know, it's hard to see. And when the rocket lights off, it's, you know, it's up there at 50,000 feet and it's not you know, down at ground level spewing mm, hydrocarbons yeah. uh, or whatever it's, um, it does its thing and it glides back. Uh, and, and so the, to me, the environmental concerns and impact of, of that type of flight is very low. The other vehicles, um, I think Elon is, um, rocket fuel basically. And, um, Musk is hydrogen with uh, methane. So those rockets aren't as clean as your typical hydrogen oxygen uh, vehicle. And, and maybe the visual of a rocket, you know, launching off with all that white smoke uh, everywhere might offend or uh, you know, give pause for concern to farmers or, you know, naturalists or, or whatever. But uh, uh, it, it's, I do not see this as a, uh, uh, you know, three times a day, oh God, here comes another, you know, that's, you know, smoke filled, uh, part of the valley forever that forever they launch from. Um, so I, I think those concerns are, you know, they, they may eventually, uh, surface if the, if this thing really, really takes off, but. Um, we're a long ways from that. And in, in my book, um, natural uh, phenomena like uh, volcano eruptions. Um, I was there in the Philippines in 91 when Mount Putubo, uh blew up and 
you know, those those ashes go everywhere. Um, we've had the Iceland uh, volcano it, it blew up and basically derailed uh, airline traffic to Europe for at least a month. And then the uh, Mount Vesuvius threatening and then whatever the volcano is on Sicily. So, I mean, the, so these things are, are happening, which I think have a far higher um, threat to the you know, the atmosphere and global health or, or whatever than, than any, um, you know, than any rocket launch. But there's always going to be the people out there protesting and uh, saying it's just, um, it's not right. It's hurting the, the ecology of the land. But I, I, I have a hard time uh, seeing that uh, unless, like I said, we're, you're just launching these things three, four times a day. We were talking earlier about the early days of the space race and uh, some of the anniversaries we've seen recently. Yuri Gagarin was the first human in space. Alan Shepard, the first American. Um, Valentina uh, Tereshkova was the first woman in space. Neil Armstrong, of course, first man on the moon. All of those were people who were first in space. And we could look back now and, and we see how history has remembered them and their accomplishments begin to realize what their legacy with regard to, to space will be. But you were a first in space too. I don't know if you embrace that idea or not. You were the first Scott. You were not, as I said earlier, not in a capsule, but almost as a stick and rudder pilot of a winged aircraft that went to space. Mm-hmm. Um, have you given any thought to how history might remember you and the Spaceship One team? Any idea of what your legacy, what your role in the entire space exploration in the big picture might be or what you would want it to be remembered as what it might mean yeah. to people. I, I, I think our, by far the biggest uh, impact or statement that we made in the spaceship one program was our boss, Bert Witten standing up in uh, 2001 saying, I have a design for a first fully private manned space program, and I'm going to complete it in, uh, I think he first said two years, but it took us three years. But in those three years, um, the small little company, mainly with young engineers, late 20s, early 30s, and we built a carrier mothership. Uh, we built the spaceship. We um, built uh, or designed a brand new uh, different kind of rocket motor and tested it and qualified it. We developed and designed our own avionic systems. We built a ground test uh, vehicle simula- simulator. And then we um, tested all those vehicles and developed a training program for the potential astronauts to go fly it. And that all happened, okay, three and a half years. That that should be a benchmark that just should be jaw-dropping, I think, for any, any company to look at that and go, wow, they must have just gotten lucky or something. <laughs> uh, no, you know, no, no, we, you know, there was real engineering going on and we had plenty of setbacks and problems. Uh, uh, I can tell you that. And it's, you can look, read my book and you'll find them. 
But, you know, that's unheard of. It, it's sort of similar to the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. It, it was built uh, uh, shortly after the Depression, and it was done in a, a few years. Of, of, sorry, I don't have the number, but if you were to try to build that bridge today, it would take forever. If you were going to start a manned space program the way Bert pretended, um, you'd be at it for decades. For what this small team did out of uh, Mojave, California, I, I believe it was um, just sort of the, a magic mix of talented people uh, with the right skills and the right mindsets all came together at the right time and, you know, made this thing happen. I believe, you know, we, we got our name on the Collier Trophy, um, you know, for that reason. Uh, it was demonstrable proof that you didn't need um, the primes or the government-type uh, programs to to build a manned space program. And, oh, by the way, you know, it only costs uh, $25 million. So I think that's how it should be remembered. All those years ago when your mom said, you know, Laddie, if I were you, I'd, I'd want to be an astronaut. When you look back on that, what do you think? You ever have any conversations with your mom about that and, and what she thinks of, of what you accomplished? Oh, yeah. My, my father is a PhD in physics. And so he's sort of the highbrow uh, member of the family and, <laughs> and, and certainly influenced me in, uh, you know, my studies and academics. But my mother uh, was very much the feisty, adventurous um, rules are made for most of the people, but I don't give them too much heat. So that's type of woman she was and uh, so you know she, she had it sort of uh, in her blood that given the opportunity she would aim for the stars so to speak and when basically I did it you know she vicariously uh, felt all the joy of sort of being there um, through me and uh, so it was a great reunion uh, Perhaps one of the best things that ever happened was in 2006, the University of Aberdeen called me over for an honorary PhD. And my father had taught at Aberdeen University. He had lived in Aberdeen. They were going to honor me with the cap and gown. And I could bring my parents back, you know, to, to where it all started. And uh, it was a wonderful ceremony. You know, it was just thrills for everybody to sort of have this whole thing come full circle. My thanks as always to my guest, Mr. Brian Binney, for sharing his personal story of spaceflight, as well as his thoughts on the future of suborbital commercial space tourism. For more about his life and journey into space, check out his book, The Magic and Menace of Spaceship One, published just last year. You'll find a link to the book in our show notes at www.underthetartansky.scot. A special note of thanks, too, to my online Twitter friend, Aberdeen writer Neil Drysdale, for his assistance in making this episode possible. 
And if you've enjoyed this episode, remember the favor of a rating or a review is always welcome on Apple Podcast, Podchaser, or whatever platform where you enjoy these episodes. And if you'd like to support future interviews with guests talking about all things Scottish, from bagpipes to whiskey, well, you can buy me a cuppa on our coffee site. That's found at ko-fi.com forward slash under the tartan sky. Or just use the bright pink button right on our podcast episodes page on our website. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Top of I guess Alba Gubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore Tartan Sky. That's the underscore symbol Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>